an, an author who I've been reading a lot this year is a, a guy by the name of Paul Kingsnorth. He's a, an English uh, writer, uh, novelist, poet. And Paul Kingsnorth, he was, a, he was an environmentalist activist uh, for most of, most of his life. Uh, he was a guy who, in the 80s, as like a young guy in his 20s, he would like lash himself with a bunch of other people in to stop like highways from being built. He was one of those kinds of guys. He's researched, he's written extensively about how humans act like they're not part of the natural world, and they just, we, you know, we just consume and destroy it and act like we're not part of it. And Kings North, he's the kind of, he was the kind of environmentalist who was just smitten with nature. He could probably write 20 pages on the birds that would appear at his house and the songs that they sing, like just a lover of wild places. And he even reorganized his entire life to be out in nature. You know, he sold, uh, he moved out of the city. He farms and ranches on his own out on like the Irish coast. He even like handles his own sewage, like legit guy. And about, as he was going through this process of really moving more into nature, interestingly, Kingsnorth actually, he started to become disillusioned with the environmentalist movement. And he's written extensively about this. And he found that the, mo- that, uh, the movement had been, in his, in his accounting, it had been hijacked by numbers, by statistics. By, he, call, he views sustainability as a dirty word. He, feels, he views it as just like engineering numbers in such a way that we can still live a life, like not confront like, the realities of nature, just have the carbon emission numbers be just right so that we can keep living the way we want to live. And in short, he, he found like, hey, People in the environmentalist movement, it's just a bunch of mathematicians who don't actually like nature anymore. It's just, there's no poetry left in the environmentalist movement. And he also discovered, and I was listening to a podcast in this week, this past week talking about this, he discovered under the environmentalist movement that he was a part of, he discovered like just deep despair underneath the movement. Uh, that, and he, he tried to explain what, or like what this despair was. And he said it ultimately came from just uh, assuming materialism, or in, like in the secular world, materialism meaning only thinking that the things that we can see is what's real. Um, so he said like in the circles that he was in, environmentalists, they, would, they viewed, they lived, like they live in the world which is being destroyed by humans, and they look at all the problems in the world, very real problems, climate change, population numbers, ocean pollution, other horrors, And he said, if all you've got is this materialist worldview where everything's just matter and there's nothing beyond that, there's no higher power, there's no God, there's no deeper meaning, he said, then you're left with a a planet that's being destroyed and you're part of a tiny band of people who are trying to stop it, but you can't. No matter how hard you try, you just can't stop it. And he says, he, he was like, it's hard to not end up becoming a nihilist. And he said, that's like a vein that he identified in the green movement. Ultimately, what he, something he turned away from was like the environmentalist movement. And if you were to read his, his works now, he still very much sounds like an environmentalist he, um, it, in ways that are, that, that, that are really striking. But he said, like, environmentalists, they, the, the movement he was a part of, they think that problems can only be solved by us, by humans. We're responsible for saving the world. And that leads to despair because, of course, it's not working. And isn't this kind of despair... Isn't it under like every rock in our culture? Isn't it under every human heart? Like put environmentalism aside. Like that's, that, whatever's going on with that movement, every movement has some 
part of this, I think. Every political, social, cultural movement, isn't there a fear underneath it that we're, the only, we're part of this small band of people, the only people in the world who can solve this massive problem? But no matter how hard we try, we just can't do it. Can you feel like the anxiety, the despair underneath that? And don't we feel a similar kind of despair even in our own lives with the small things? And of course, I put small in quotes because they're not actually small things. Like, how impossible is it to secure like, that your children are safe, educated, and are successful? It's, it feels impossible. How despairing is it to just try to have a job, make ends meet, improve in a career? Here's the one I think that will register with some people in this room. How despairing is it with like, trying to manage your own health? where you change your diet, you change your medications, you change your lifestyle, but no matter how hard you try, you, just, you still feel unwell. And I think ultimately, and again, just social movements aren't subject to this criticism. We all are. We despair because, like King's North observes, we're materialists. That's, just, that's the, the de facto, what's everywhere and it's in, including in our own hearts. And we ultimately, at the bottom, we go through each day just viewing it like we have to solve everything. Humans are the only ones who can solve the problems on earth. And also, let's admit, it's really natural to believe that. It's really easy to believe that because God is absent, right? You can't see him. You can't really hear him. Can we at least admit that it feels like as we face some of the biggest problems in our lives or look at the biggest things going on in our world that it feels like God's not here? Our story today, this long story, it's one where if you look at it, God's actually, he's absent. He's not the subject of any verbs. His name is mentioned plenty, but he doesn't explicitly do anything. You could have written this story in a way where he, the name of God wasn't included. He doesn't do anything. But I think as we, look, as we comb through this story again, we'll see that God is present. He is guiding. And we'll see that he secures the future, that he cares about matters both big and small. So as I take us through this story again, I want, to, you have a, I want a question to be in your mind as we're tracking through it. Where is God? Where is God? So let's go through this story again. So first observation about this story, one that I don't care how old you are, you probably observed, observed this about the story. It's a really long story. It's really long. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, if you're able to keep your attention through the whole story, you're, you're probably a better attention, a better attention span than me. As I'm like, as I was like prepping, prepping for this sermon, I try to like read through the passage a number of times, right? And I would lose my attention halfway through. It's a long story. And other stories in Genesis that we found are really short. The, the story of the Tower of Babel, for example, is just, is read around 200 words in the English language. And that's about a story about the collapse of an entire civilization. This story, on the other hand, this little, this vignette, this li- almost like a little novel, it's over, over 1,700 words 
It's like eight times as long. Biblical authors can say a lot in very few words. So why all the attention to detail in this passage? Why are there oaths and loins and camels and wells and rings? As I think we'll see, the, rep- the repetitiveness of this story, it actually makes us confront the wildness of this story and how God is watching over it. The people in the story are just amazed again and again. The story begins with Abraham sending his servant on a mission. This is actually, Abraham is at this is chapter 24. Abraham is going to die in chapter 25. He doesn't, he, he doesn't marry again, we learn in chapter 25. But this is the last story, thing about Abraham where he's really doing something and making something happen in a narrative in the Bible. It's kind of his last story. And you can hear some desperation in this story. He's trying to secure the future. This has just been the, the story for Abraham's life again and again and again. The, God makes big promises about his line and his offspring, but that promise seems to continually be in jeopardy. And it is again here. Who is, who is Isaac going to marry? The line is in danger. And this is what the oath is about. Abraham makes this servant take, a, take an oath, putting his hand. He puts, so the, it's about securing Abraham's line, securing the future, right? So the guy puts his hand, when taking an oath, near Abraham's procreative organ because there's symbolism in that and how personal and intense this mission is and also how it has to do with securing Abraham's line. Now, it's worth noting that Abraham seems to think that God is quite involved in this story. I don't know if you caught on to that at the beginning. He makes the servant swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. He cites how the Lord had called him out of his father's house and promised him land. And he also says that an angel will go before him. Do we ever see this angel? We don't. But Abraham's confident that his way will be, that his way will prosper because of the Lord. Who's this servant? Uh, the servant is, he would have been like the second in charge behind Abraham of the household. He's more than just an indentured servant. Uh, he's given a massive responsibility. Think about it. This mission is, it's really immense. He's not only given an, a, a, an intense mission, he's also given tons of wealth, camels, people that go with him. And on this, this, this he, well, he didn't just like go around the corner, around the block for this mission. He would have had to travel hundreds of miles. And as we'll see, this servant, he's very faithful and resourceful. So he goes to a well, and this, this well would have been the place where a young woman at a certain kind of day would go and bring water for their families. And he prays this, he prays this really unique prayer in Scripture in verses 12 through 14, um, where he, he petitions the Lord. He says, you know, grant me success. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Verse 13 I, always find, I find interesting because he's just, he's just kind of conversational with God. He's like, hey, I'm here. I'm here in the, by the spring of water. And then he just he makes this incredibly specific request. He says, let the young woman to whom I'll say this, let her say this, and let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I'll know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. It's a really unique prayer in Scripture, uh, not only because it's conversational with God, uh, but also because it's really specific. He asked for a really specific thing, an individual thing. And oftentimes in a story like this, I don't know if you like fairy, t- like fairy tales or stories you tell your kids, like 
Stories of like the three little pigs, you know, there's usually when they like the climax of a story, there's like one or two things that don't go the right way first. Like I think if this story was a fairy tale, uh, or if it was written as like a fairy tale was, there'd be like one or two women who don't pass the test. But that's not what happens. Immediately, Rebecca enters the scene, even before he's finished speaking. Rebecca, and Rebecca is right away. She's very hospitable, and she's energetic. She, uh, the, the well that she appears by is kind of a, is kind of a symbol for her, and she's, she's in her life. Uh, she offers water to the servant. Well, he asks for her for water. She says yes, gives him water. But then she, she does the next thing that the servant asks for, and she offers water for the camels. Now, this wouldn't have, in her offering to water the camels, this wouldn't have been her just, like, going downstairs to, like, our water fountain, filling up, like, a Gatorade bottle, and coming back up and giving it to, to, this, to Abraham. This would have, like, this, these are 10 camels uh, that have traveled hundreds of miles in the desert, and she would have been carrying a very heavy water jug. So she would have been running to carry, like, probably made, like, dozens of trips to be able to water all these, to give water to all these camels. It shows that she's, like, she's generous, hospitable, going above and beyond. It also shows she had to probably be, like, physically strong to be doing this. The text really wants us to see just what a a lively character she is. The servant gives her gives her gifts when like she's she's checking off all the boxes and asks to ask who her family is. And behold, she's part of the exact family that he's that he was looking for. Remember, remember the prompt I gave you at the beginning. Where is God? I'm tracking through this long story. I'm going to take through this long story. I know. Where is God? Where are you seeing him? The servant then deals very shrewdly with, Rebe- with Rebecca's family. Um, her, the, her household seems to be run by Laban, her brother. And Laban, we learn later in Genesis, he's something of a con man. Uh, he, do, he's, he tricks uh, Jacob later in, in Genesis. And do you see this, this like super subtle note in verse 30? The, when we first meet Laban, uh, he... As Laban, you know, Rebecca comes in, Laban runs out toward the middle, and, and Laban, as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of, of, of Rebecca, his sister. He, where, does, where do his eyes immediately go? To the wealth, the, the bracelets, and the rings. So, the shrewd servant, how does he talk to this guy? How does he talk to this head of house? How does he introduce himself in his mission? And I know the story feels incredibly repetitive, but the servant, changed, he kind of realigns things a little bit from what Abraham told him to do in a way that's really clever. He, he, his speech, um, so what he, he, how does he begin his speech? He begin his, begins his speech not exactly verbatim in the way that Abraham sent him on the mission, but he says, hey, the Lord has made Abraham great. He has flocks and herds, silver, gold, servants, donkeys. Now, Abraham didn't say that line. But as he's saying it, can you, like, see the, like, Scrooge McDuck dollar signs in Laban's eyes in response to that line? Just like the, he's, he's really tailoring the, this request towards Laban. He also leaves some of, he leaves some of the more offensive parts out of Abraham's commissioning, commissioning of him. So Abraham, in, his, uh, in sending out the servant, he really draws attention to how the Lord of heaven and earth had called specifically Abraham to leave his father's house 
and that there's an offspring and there's a land that was going to be specifically for Abraham. That would have been a little bit offensive, right, to Laban and to Abraham's family who he's greeting here. So the, the servant really cleverly kind of turns the volume down on those things that Abraham said. And instead, he turns the volume up on Abraham's request to find someone from his father's house. Do you see how the, the, his father's house is actually lifted up? And, and is, is viewed, is, is, it's a way for him to make this request in a really clever way. And he repeats the story of what happened at the well, which no matter where you come from or who you are, the story is really astounding that things happen right away. And uh, the servant, the other, the clever, so Laban, he says yes, and, um, and, it's, and the, the servant praises, praises the Lord. And then the servant does another clever thing, which is he insists on leaving right away. Laban uh, asks to, for Rebecca to stay for 10 days. And commentators are actually kind of confused. It's a weird request, like, stay for 10 days. Like, you know, what's going on here? Some speculate that it's actually a euphemism for a lot longer, maybe 10 months maybe longer than 10 months. And later, I mean, later on in Genesis, we see that Laban tricks Jacob into staying with him for years. Uh, like being with Laban is where Jacob gets stuck. So how is, so the, the servant cleverly is like, we're going to go now. And how are they going to find their way out of this snare? Ultimately, it could, it's, it's Rebecca. Rebecca is the one who, who, uh, who dodges the snare. She, she boldly says, I will go, which, and multiple commentators see this, she really is proving to be the new Abraham in this passage. Abraham had left this same family back in Genesis chapter 12, had been willing to leave behind the comforts of his home, leave his father's house to go to a new land, and that's exactly what Rebecca does. She's, she's just a very active and energetic character. And interestingly, her husband Isaac, her future husband Isaac, is like really passive in this story and in pretty much all the stories he's in. I mean, Isaac's, he's sitting in a field for this whole story. But she, on the other hand, is saying, I will go. And in another wild coincidence, that, and this is just the one that, that really gets me as I'm looking for where God is in this story, the family happens to pronounce a blessing upon Rebecca that is almost verbatim the exact same blessing that the Lord had pronounced on Isaac back in chapter 22, saying that your offspring, they say, may your offspring possess the gate of your enemies. The exact same blessing. And the story comes to a very satisfying conclusion. They, they make the trek back, and Isaac is strolling out in his field. He and Rebecca meet. Their eyes meet for the first time. And it ends with, Isaac loving her. It really ends with a love story. It's the first time that a man and his wife, that, they love, that their love for each other is explicitly mentioned in Scripture. If there's a love at first sight story in the Bible, this is probably as close as you're going to get. So we end with God having secured the future. It starts with Abraham being old and desperate and not knowing the future of his, of, of his house. And it ends with Isaac in love with Rebekah. And it ends with Rebecca going into Sarah's tent, is what the text says. She's now the new Sarah. She's the new matriarch. Like I said, there are ways that she's kind of the new Abraham. The story begins with Abraham, but we don't see Abraham at the end of the passage. Did you notice that? It starts with Abraham and ends with, with Isaac. 
the line is continuing and thriving. The old dying characters, they're being replaced by a new generation who will be following the Lord. So I ask again, where is God in this story? While being nowhere, can't you see that he was also everywhere in that story? That his fingerprints are over the whole thing. The servant, what a remarkable guy who was raised up to do such a task. Prayerful, faithful, dutiful, clever. The string of things that happen, a specific ask yields a specific result for a specific person at a specific time. And then Rebecca, just being this, this really surprisingly, surprisingly strong character who just enters into the story. Do you see how the Lord is working things? He's, he's bringing forth a new generation as an old one dies. He's architecting the whole thing. He's architecting the little details, the camels and the water. But he's also architecting the big story arc for all of Genesis. God secures the future. The story starts in desperation. What's to be done? But it ends with resolution. It has been done. And who did it? The Lord did, of course. God had the future in his hands all along. He always did. And I think the length and repetitiveness of this story actually brings home that point, doesn't it? In a powerful way. So turning towards us. The story, how do you looking at this story is where is God in this story? Where is God in your story? Where is God in our story as a church? He's kind of nowhere and everywhere all at once, right? This is a story about a future that's uncertain. Where is your future the most uncertain? Where, as you anxiously consider your future, where are you the most afraid? Where, if you're honest, are you making this, could you say the same thing as Paul King's North? And at the bottom, you're despairing. You feel like you or maybe some other people are the only ones in control of everything. And you know nothing good's going to come out of it. And maybe you're here, you're visiting for the first time, or you're not a, you're not a Christian, and this like registers with you. Like, it's really anxiety-inducing, isn't it? To feel like you're in charge of everything. Do you feel it with your finances? Your financial future? Do you feel it with your children? Or if you want to have children, if God will bring you children? Like this, this is a story about a desperate father trying to secure a future for his son. Is anyone here terrified about your children's future? Or our church? In a season without a lead pastor, has the future ever felt less certain? Brothers and sisters, God secures the future. That's what this story is about. This doesn't mean that everything always goes the way we want. 
This doesn't mean that the way is always easy. It wasn't for Abraham in many cases. But God is upholding the world. He's upholding the the big details, the big story arcs, and also the little things. He's upholding the world. But he's also upholding you. It's easy to say God's upholding the world. It's pretty hard to believe that he's actually upholding you. He's guiding your finances, your children, our church. He has a plan. And you're not in control of everything. Uh, Isn't that a relief? Like, take a deep breath. Relax a little. Ease your anxious neck and back. You are not God. You do not have to hold everything together. God secures the future. You don't have to save your children or the church or the culture or whatever. God does that. And I think if we slow down our days into slow motion, kind of like this story does, I think we could see that God is everywhere. If we took five minutes to write down all the things that God has plopped in front of us, the people, the places, the provisions, I don't think it'd be hard for us to see how he's everywhere, even though it feels like he's nowhere. Now, of course, this call saying that God's in control of everything, it's not, we still have to be faithful. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not saying that you, don't, you can just sit on your hands. Abraham's faithful in this story. The servant is faithful. Rebecca is faithful. They're real people who are making free decisions. We too are going to have to walk out of this place and make free decisions. But God help us from thinking that we're the ones who are going to secure the future, that we can maneuver our lives in such a way and control things in such a way in the place where we're most afraid to just make everything better. God help us from thinking that we really are, are in control like that. And of course, the ultimate proof that God secures the future is Jesus Christ. Jesus, like, this, like, like the God that we see in this passage, passage, he cared about big things and small things. He cared about small things. He cared about greeting people by name, healing individual people, going to dinner parties. But he also cared about the big things. He conquered sin and death. He overcame the grave. Jesus gave up his life to secure the future, to secure our future, to secure that we could participate in the kingdom of heaven, in this life, and be before his face for all of eternity. And actually, Jesus' cross, it's the ultimate story of God seeming to be nowhere, but actually being everywhere all at once. Jesus cried on the cross as he was dying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If anyone could have said that God was absent, it was Jesus at that moment. And yet God was actually very present, architecting and carrying out his plan to save the entire world, particularly on that hill at that moment, on that cross. And I think we should expect nothing less from our own lives. The places where God seems to be the most absent may be the exact places where God is forming us into who he's calling us to be. Where is the invitation for you this morning from God?
in the places where he seems absent, to turn to him, to see his fingerprints everywhere. So let's not be a people of frenetic anxiety or despair. I opened by talking about despair. God secures the future. He, but, and this is where I'm going to end. He's not just a distant cosmic architect. He's not just an old man sitting in some giant celestial chair with a big white beard. He lo- he's, he's a father. He's our father. And he loves us. And he loves you. And he has, his, has your future in his hands. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.